This is Guns and Butter. The war criminals are those who decide who the war criminals are supposed to be. Okay, the heads of state, namely the president of the United States. Or the or the British Prime Minister will say, "Well, the war criminals are those people," but of course we're not war criminals. Again, it, it's it's tied into the financial crisis because it it ultimately upholds the legitimacy, the legitimacy to kill, the legitimacy to impoverish, uh, and the process of impoverishing through the free market is is contiguous to the process of killing through military intervention in different parts of the world. It's the same people. It's the same institutions. It's the same power brokers, the same financial institutions, and uh, those are the structures of of capitalism as we know it. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosadovsky. Today's show: America's fiscal collapse. Obama's budget will impoverish America. Michelle Chosadovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues focusing on strategic, geopolitical, economic, social, and environmental processes. He is the author of *The Globalization of Poverty: War and Globalization*. The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. His most recent articles include Obama's Inauguration, Slide on Wall Street, Where Have All the Creditors Gone, Canada's $75 billion bank bailout, Massive Deployment of U.S. and Allied Troops in Afghanistan, The Destabilization of Haiti, and America's Fiscal Collapse. Michel Chosadovsky, welcome. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Your latest article, America's Fiscal Collapse, paints a frightening picture of an evolving process of global financial collapse. You start with an examination of Obama's 2010 budget proposal. He has talked about quality education and making health care more affordable and accessible, yet you point out that Obama's promise depends on a mammoth austerity program and the most drastic curtailment of public spending in American history. How can he do both at the same time? Well, essentially, he is presenting a recovery program uh, without having the money to implement it. Uh, it, It's a a rhetorical statement, because if you look at the numbers, and the the numbers are frightening, you have a $1.45 trillion um, bank bailout program, uh, which is the initial Bush administration troubled assets relief program, TARP, which in effect is to be financed under the 2009 uh, fiscal year. But uh, there's another uh, $750 billion uh, Obama um, aid package to the financial institutions. So that if you add those two together, you get one point forty-five trillion. Uh, you add in defense spending, which is of the order of seven hundred thirty-nine billion dollars. That's the the statutory uh, 
allocations to the Department of Defense, which are $734 billion for fiscal year 2010, plus another $130 billion supplemental, again under fiscal 2010. And then there's another emergency funding of $75.5 billion, which is under fiscal year 2009. But the total which is mentioned in the, in the, the budgetary allocation is $739 billion. So those two categories of expenditure, the bank bailout plus the defense allocations, uh, go up to $2.3 trillion. And $2.3 trillion, in fact, is very close to the total um, federal government revenue for fiscal year 2010. So it, all the money is all the money is actually all the the revenue accruing to the federal government, which is of the order of 2.381 trillion, uh, would be used up essentially to cover defense expenditure and the so-called bank bailouts to the financial services industry. Now some of those are on two fiscal years, but uh, I think it's the order of magnitude which is frightening. And I should mention that out of the various bailout packages uh, since uh, last September, okay, September, October, when they were first uh, discussed by the Bush administration, in effect, uh, TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, officially is, is of the order of $700 billion, but in actuality, the, the cash injections uh, through various uh, government agencies, uh, could be up to 8.5 trillion. Okay. Now, what I'm saying is, why is there fiscal collapse? There's fiscal collapse because the revenues generated by the state, which essentially are income tax, payroll taxes, uh, corporate taxes, which amount to 2.3 trillion dollars. Most of that money now is allocated to two categories of expenditure, defense spending and the bank bailout. Uh, and if you look at federal income tax, individual income tax, in other words, what's paid out by households, you're talking about $1 trillion, essentially. That's what households pay in the form of federal income tax on an annual basis. It doesn't include state taxes. It doesn't include sales taxes, but if you, if you look at that amount uh, and, and people pay that money, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a burden on, on, on households, that money doesn't even cover the bailout to the banks because the bailout to the banks is $1.45 trillion, and what households pay in a, in a fiscal year is, is just over $1 trillion so that what that means is that the totality of, of personal income tax across America is eaten up to finance, uh, essentially, Wall Street, on the one hand, it's cash that they receive, and they don't even account for that cash. And then secondly, it's money that goes to the defense, so-called defense contractors, the, the, the companies like like Lockheed Martin, uh, Raytheon, and, and Northrop Grinman, which produce weapons for the war theater, 
plus all the expenses associated with the war. So when the revenue accruing to the Treasury does not suffice to cover uh, all other categories of expenditure, then that's when you have a collapse, because defense and the bank bailout are eating up the totality of federal government revenue. Now, um, Obama um, has said that they're going to be running a $1.75 trillion deficit. I think it's going to be much more than that. And that $1.75 trillion deficit, budget deficit, is essentially there to cover everything else. And what I suspect is going to happen is that uh, we're going to see a most drastic curtailment in public spending. Um, every single category of civilian expenditure, health, education, will be slashed to the bone. And then on the other hand, what you, what you have is a spiraling public debt crisis. Uh, you have to finance this $1.75 trillion. Uh, How are you going to do it? You have to start the mission of treasury bills on a massive scale and government bonds. Then you have to ask, of course, the very important question. Interest rates are close to zero, okay? They're close to zero. Now, who's going to buy $1.75 trillion of um, treasury bills and government bonds when, when the yield on, on, uh, on treasury bills uh, are, are, you know, less than 2%. So we're in a very, very serious situation because the Treasury lacks the ability to finance its $1.75 trillion budget deficit through public debt operations because of the, the fact that interest rates are, are so low. And then the question is whether China and Japan will, will continue to buy U.S. dollar-denominated debt instruments. You can't fund anything. Okay, the money has already been allocated to Wall Street. And, and that's something people should start to look at. In, in effect, what we're dealing with is the fraudulent appropriation of tax revenues to finance the bank bailout. Where is the bank bailout money ultimately going? What do the banks do with this money? They move the money, they transfer it into their affiliated hedge funds, um, they then use that money to buy up uh, the real economy. So they're, go they're going to go in and on a shopping spree, picking up companies like General Motors at rock-bottom prices, using the money, actually, which has been given to them uh, by the Treasury and which is financed uh, by, uh, by federal uh, tax revenues. Well, then... Uh are you then saying that the bank bailouts are not intended to solve the crisis? The bank bailouts don't solve the crisis. They, in fact, contribute to exacerbating the crisis because the money handed to the banks is not uh, leading to a positive injection into, into the real economy. It's not creating uh, jobs. It's not, it's not uh, enabling uh, companies uh, which are facing... Uh, difficulties which are on the verge of bankruptcy of of you know more or less restoring a, a, an element of growth in 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 their production and so on uh, that money goes into the coffers of a handful of financial institutions and then they can use it any way they want they can in fact transfer it to uh, 
to the affiliated hedge funds. The banks are saying, well, we have financial difficulties because of derivative exposure. We owe money. But to whom do they owe the money? Nobody knows who the creditors are. Uh, who, who holds these liabilities? In other words, who are the creditors of last resort? And in, in effect, I suspect that the creditors are affiliated institutions of these same financial institutions. Okay? They, in other words, the affiliated hedge funds are creditors of the banks, uh, so that the banks are, in a sense, they owe money to themselves. They then transfer that money to affiliated hedge funds which are the creditors of these financial institutions. And what that does essentially is that it, it leads to the accumulation of private wealth by very powerful financial uh, actors, which then can be used, because it's paper wealth, it, then it can be used to pick up the real economy at, uh, at, at rock-bottom prices, because the whole the value of these listed companies, I'm talking about real economy, companies, industry, high-tech, uh, and so on, uh, airlines, all the stock values of these companies are collapsing, and eventually what they're going to do is to pick up the pieces. Uh, they're going to pick up the most profitable um, uh, productive assets, and the whole ownership structure of U.S. industry is going to change as a result. Well, since you've taken a detailed look at the budget numbers, are you saying that Obama's 2010 budget is a big scam? Well, it is a scam. Yes, it, it, it's a scam in, in, in the sense that it misleads Americans into believing that, that this is a, an expansionary program. It's not. It, it's a scam in, in the sense that it presents the budget as a solution to the crisis, that it's going to uh, um, involve a recovery program, uh, that it is a stimulus package. There's no stimulus in this, in this program because all the revenue are being used uh, for those two categories of expenditure, defense and the bank bailout. Public spending will be slashed with a view to curtailing a spiraling budget deficit, which the government can't finance. I suspect that health and education will remain heavily underfunded. Um, I suspect that expenditures on all categories of civilian expenditure will be slashed, revamped, and uh, the next stage is the exaction of user fees, which exists already. I'm speaking with economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, America's Fiscal Collapse, Obama's Budget, will impoverish America. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You say that the fiscal collapse will lead to the privatization of the state. The subsequent stage is the privatization of all state programs which have not yet been privatized, so that the likely outcome is outright privatization of public services, the sale of state assets, including public infrastructure, urban services, highways, national parks. Um, and uh, what I'm saying is that fiscal collapse, uh, which is inherent in the numbers which I've, I've indicated, essentially leads to the privatization of the state. Uh, you know, the Los Angeles Times had an article called, As Taxes Climb, Quality of Life Falls in State. 
And this article reports that the new California budget has accelerated the sunset of a way of life that most transportation experts, this is just one example, have concluded that it will be impossible to keep keep the state's freeway system free. The state's new budget package acknowledges this by giving Caltrans free reign to turn over road projects to private companies, which would probably recoup their investment through tolls, and predicts that in the not-too-distant future, drivers will need to place electronic transponders in their vehicles to keep track of the miles they log on various freeways. They would be charged accordingly. So this is just one example. No, that's, that's certainly that's one example. And, and uh, uh, I think that the, the next phase uh, is, is the privatization or the de facto privatization of the entire uh, transport network. Um, well, uh, four-lane highways are easy to privatize because you just sell them off to a private company or you give them a 99-year lease of, of sorts. Okay? And, and then what happens is, of course, the money which is um, accruing from the sale of these assets will then be used to pay back the public debt. Okay? And essentially, and the irony is that part of that public debt is held by the banks. And the banks are the recipients of the bailout. So that, in effect, what the banks are telling the government is the following. They're, they're saying, hey, uh, you are uh, paying out a $1.45 trillion bank bailout to us. But uh, we are going to help you to finance that handout because we are also the creditors of the federal government. We hold part of that debt, not all of it, part of it. But the other part that is, of course, what we are also the brokers of the public debt. We sell uh, treasury bills on, on, the, you know, on the global market. We try to convince the Chinese and the Japanese to buy, the, to buy these treasury bills and these government bonds. So that, in effect, what the federal government is doing is financing its own indebtedness. It's handing money to the banks, and then it's asking the banks, could you help us to finance the massive budget deficit which is required to finance the handout. Okay? So that the banks are both the recipients of, of uh, public money, and at the same time, they are the creditors of the state, and they assist, so to speak, the federal government to finance the budget deficit which is required to pay the bailout. It's a circular process. It's diabolical. And then they'll say to the government, hey, uh, you're running a budget deficit. Your AAA rating is affected now. Uh, Moody's and Standard & Poor will come in and then say the federal debt is no longer AAA, and they'll do the same thing for the state governments. And essentially what they're doing uh, is, is the following. They are exacting these bailouts from the federal government, and then they're saying to the federal government, well, because you've paid out these trillion-dollar bailouts, your credit rating has, has dropped. And, and uh, then they will say, well, under those circumstances, you have to privatize your assets. And, of course, they will then go in with the money that has been paid out uh, through the bailout. They will use that money to buy up the highways. Okay? That, that's the circular process that we're dealing with. Does the U.S. federal government control monetary policy? And also in that vein... Why are interest rates being kept so low on treasuries? For instance, you know, as you pointed out, they're close to zero percent. If they have to raise money 
internationally to fund the spiraling deficit, why are they keeping interest rates so low? The reason why they're keeping interest rates so low is that this is the, the rate at which um, they lend money to the, to the financial institutions. And these financial institutions uh, also use this money to speculate on, on the various uh, markets, including the stock markets, uh, the energy markets, and so on. In other words, these are margin accounts. Now, uh, if, you, uh, if you have interest rates uh, which are exceedingly low, it's very cheap to borrow money for speculative activities. And, and in fact, some analysts have pointed to the fact that with these very low interest rates, what this does is, is it really encourages, uh, it encourages the speculative onslaught because you can, you can borrow money at, at a very low rate and then you can undertake uh, investments in speculative uh, instruments and, and so on. Uh, there's, there's no evidence that these low interest rates have actually trickled down because, in effect, the rates of interest, the discount rates, are, are exceedingly low. But, but if you look at, at the rates at which households borrow, uh, namely credit card, uh, credit card debts, for instance, we're still dealing with interest rates which, which are of the order of 18% per annum. I suspect that these exceedingly low interest rates don't apply uh, across the board. They don't apply to consumer credit. Uh, they don't even apply to mortgages, although, again, mortgage rates will be affected by these this low structure of interest rates. But if you, if you, if you wanted to really restore um, credit with a major impact on, on uh, let's say, household expenditure on, and credit for small-scale uh, enterprises, it's not by bringing down the, the discount rate to abysmally low levels. Well, uh, no, and, and, and so this all indicates that the, the private banks are controlling everything, right? Oh, absolutely. They control everything. And they're also the speculators. And, and they, also, um, they also have the ability to, to uh, move the stock market um, up and down. The evidence is that the stock market movements are heavily manipulated because they can be moved through, through derivative trade. They, they don't even need to actually have transactions to make the, the stock market go down. People think that that the stock market collapses because people are selling off their stocks. No, the, the only thing that is required is for the, these powerful financial institutions to bet on a downward movement uh, through derivative instruments, okay, which are index funds, for instance, and then the stock market will go down. And since they control those movements, and at the same time, uh, they, they can bet on, on the downward movement. They make it go down, and then they speculate on the downward movement. Now, an, a normal investor in, in, the, in the stock market uh, loses money when the stock market collapses. But these financial institutions, they make money when, when the market goes up, and they also make money when the market goes down, because they can bet uh, using derivative instruments 
in one or other of the directions which the market is, is moving. And, and I think what is very important to understand is that the people who are currently in charge uh, in Obama's economic team, uh, Larry Summers, chairman of the, of the Council of Economic Advisors, um, and various other individuals, the, these people were the architects of the 1999 Financial Services Modernization Act. And, and that piece of legislation was fundamental because it really set the stage for this financial crisis. It repealed the Glass-Steagall Act of, of 1933, which, which prevented commercial banks from integrating their activities with stock, uh, stock brokerage firms and insurance companies. And what the Financial Services Modernization Act did was to allow for the creation of these global financial conglomerates uh, with integrated activities, uh, commercial banking, uh, stock brokerage firms, insurance companies, accounting firms, and so on. And essentially what that meant is that credit was then used to finance speculative trade um, rather than uh, the bona fide uh, activities of commercial banking, which is to finance uh, the real economy. And as I, as I suggested, if you look at the budget, uh, you don't see, just by looking at the numbers, you do not see any solution, any possible solution. Uh, what you see is a, is a collapsing fiscal structure. And I, I think we have to understand is that this is the most serious uh, crisis in modern history. Um, and if we're looking at the, at the fiscal structure, this is a fiscal collapse. It's not a fiscal crisis. It's a fiscal collapse because it means that virtually every category of public expenditure is threatened and is threatened by the fact that the bank bailout is taking billions of dollars away or trillions of dollars because we're talking about more than a trillion dollar in terms of bank bailout and that money comes out of the treasury and then where does the treasury get the money to finance everything else through a massive uh, budget deficit and that budget deficit then has to be financed through the mission of, of treasury bills and government bonds uh, at exceedingly low interest rates. And then the question is, is that possible under present circumstances? Who's going to buy that public debt? Well, exactly. So the speculators are taking all of the money and then they're crashing the system, is what it sounds like to me. The, the speculators are crashing the system. That is, uh, that is correct. And the speculators are also demanding that the, that the federal government help them to crash the system. That's, that's very important because they are not only using the gains that they made through speculative trade in the course of the last few years, which has led to tremendous accumulation of private wealth, and that's well understood. But they are now saying, uh, well, the banking system is in difficulty essentially because of of, of the speculative onslaught, and you must help us. And now they're appropriating the tax revenues, and they're using these tax revenues to buy out the real economy. Uh, that money is moving within the system. It goes through electronic transfers. 
nobody has really um, begged the question, where does the money go? Where has the money gone? Where have, have all those tax dollars gone to? Okay? Uh, and and uh, when the Treasury spends money, they usually monitor. Uh, they say, well, okay, we're going to allocate money to build a road. Well, then you monitor the road. Okay? But when you give a, a, a billion dollars to the banks, you don't ask them, what did you do with the money? Did you spend it wisely? Does it contribute to creating jobs? No, you don't. That money just vanishes. No, and a lot of it's gone offshore, hasn't it? Absolutely. Now, that's what I call financial theft. It's a, it's a modern form of highway robbery. It's done through electronic transfers. It is the outright criminalization of the financial system uh, because uh, there was no actual rationale for, for, for saying, yes, we must help the banks. The banks are in difficulty. But again, uh, there was no monitoring of, of what the money was used for. And uh, we were led to believe that if you bail out the banks, uh, then this is the, the answer to creating employment and reviving uh, the economy and so on and so forth. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite. The money has, has gone, it's disappeared, and now it's going to be used because it's paper wealth. It's going to be used to buy out the financial system. And it's also being used it's being used in a very pernicious way uh, to spearhead the bankruptcy of, of, uh, of bona fide corporate uh, uh, corporations across America. I'm speaking with economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, America's fiscal collapse. Obama's budget will impoverish America. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So the speculators are actually running the government and running the economy into the ground. So it looks like, uh, well, we're going to be facing unprecedented times with, well, a lot of people are talking about social upheaval, etc. That is true. I think that as the impacts of this crisis unfold, and and we're talking about uh, millions of people who have lost their jobs, millions of people who have lost their homes through the foreclosures, we can expect that this is going to uh, emerge uh, in, uh, in major protest movements across America. There's no question about it. The form which this might take is difficult to predict because there's no organized um, movement to disarm the financial system so that maybe this protest movement will be spontaneous. It may be regional, but eventually it may become much more organized because people will realize that, that you know, across America there are certain interests that we should be defending and, and we should be defending them collectively. We should be putting our energies together, presenting alternatives, and, and also questioning the legitimacy of those who... Who are, who are behind this, this uh, financial agenda. And eventually, since we're dealing with the criminalization of the state, we have to start prosecuting the people who are responsible for, for financial fraud, because this is a massive financial fraud, and people will start to realize it. Um, but um, uh, you're absolutely right. The government is also foreseeing the possibility of mass protest movements. It has uh, repatriated uh, a division which was uh, in Iraq. It brought it back to the United States. In other words, these are 
these are combat units, but they're placed under the authority of, of U.S. Northern Command with a specific task and mandate to assist civilian law enforcement uh, uh, agencies, uh, in other words, the FBI, the LAPD, whatever, uh, in the case of national emergencies, but it's also assumed that, they, that this could be used to, to uh, curb uh, social protest movements. Uh, there have been various initiatives. Um, uh, there's been another very important initiative, which is it, it's, um, it's a bill in the U.S. Congress, H.R. 645, and it's the initiative to establish FEMA camps um, on, on U.S. military facilities. And, and again, explicitly, uh, it's explicitly tied into the possibility of social unrest across America. So that, that um, on the one hand, yes, I think, that, I think that people are going to protest this government policy. And at the same time, the federal as well as the state authorities are likely to, to quell or to repress any form of protest, of organized protest against uh, this uh, financial policy. And I should say that, that the, the financial restructuring on the one hand, uh, the war on the other hand, as well as the national security agenda, they're, they're very much interrelated uh, the war is also serving um, economic interests, it's essentially serving the, the, the interests of the U.S. Uh, uh, military-industrial complex, the large defense contractors, but uh, also the oil companies, the oil conglomerates, which have positioned themselves uh, in the Middle East and Central Asia. And, of course, we're dealing with uh, a region of the world which has 60% of um, of the global reserves of oil and natural gas, as opposed to less than two percent of the United States of America, so that the Texas oil companies, allied with their British counterparts, particularly British Petroleum, uh, are at the forefront of the military agenda. It's it's their agenda, but at the same time, the oil companies are tied into the interests of Wall Street. Of, of course, in fact, they overlap. Uh, and so that uh, there you have uh, an agenda. It's, it's a military agenda. It's a national security agenda. It's a financial agenda. And ultimately, the interests are overlapping. It's the same group of, of, of companies, of, of financial institutions. It's the oil companies. It's Wall Street. It's the defense contractors, perhaps the biotech conglomerates, uh, which, are also, which are also involved in, in this process. And essentially, the, this handful of, of very powerful uh, corporate uh, uh, entities have captured the, the political process. And in fact, they are even implementing an agenda which goes against, which goes against the interests of, of corporate America broadly. I mean, if we're thinking of industrial corporations, high-tech companies, uh, which, uh, which at this point, particular juncture are in serious financial difficulties, companies like General Motors, okay? So that at the same time, there's a, there's a, there's a conflict within the corporate establishment. Uh, there are probably several avenues of conflict. There's a, there's a conflict between the, 
the financial uh, institutions on the one hand and real economy corporations which are driven into bankruptcy, but they're also very important divisions within the financial establishment. But I think what is very important to understand is that ultimately the most important conflict is the conflict between these corporate financial elites on the one hand and everybody else. Uh, namely people whose livelihood uh, uh, is affected by the crisis, who have lost their jobs, who have lost their homes, people who don't have access to education and health because all the money has been confiscated by the financial institutions under the bailout program and so on. So that is where I think the protest movement is going to emerge. It's, It's the protest movement which is directed against these policies Again, it may eventually unfold in a very piecemeal fashion, uh, not necessarily tied into a to a cohesive political position. Uh, but eventually, I think Americans are going to realize uh, what is at stake, and they uh, they are going to forcefully uh, address the lies of U.S economic and social policy, as well as the war. Now, uh, since you've pointed out that, uh, well, for some time now, there have been plans afoot to bring this uh, combat division back from Iraq and station them domestically, and then you mentioned this FEMA bill that's going through Congress. Well, all of this indicates that for some time now, uh, at long-range planning, they have known, the government has known that people are going to be uh, going bankrupt, etc. So, so they know this. They're anticipating this. I, I think there's certainly been an anticipation of social unrest in America, but, but it's also, if we look at an earlier period, I think that the so-called war on terrorism has been used as a pretext to curb any form of, of uh, radical dissent um, in, in America, so that uh, I think that two um, areas which which uh, which are being targeted. On the one hand, radical dissent, protest movements, which go back. I mean, they go back to the 1990s or to the 1980s. They've always been uh, present in uh, in American society. Uh, the anti-globalization movement was considered to be a, 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 an area of radical dissent, although it, is, it, it isn't necessarily in the forefront of dissent today. Uh, and then you have the, the, the other area of dissent, which is the more spontaneous um, movement, which emerges from the crisis itself, uh, uh, namely people whose lives have been destroyed as a, as a result of of, of these policies, people who have lost their homes and their jobs and who have nowhere to go. But these people are not necessarily politicized to the extent that they will lead a movement of opposition to, the, to, to these policies. Eventually, perhaps, but I think that what's very important is to provide direction to that movement, cohesive direction. And, uh, and I, I think that the the government, as well as the people who support the government, are very well aware of what they have to do to quell dissent. And one, one way to quell dissent is to control the media, of course. That, that we know. It's, it's the fact that, that the mainstream media is controlled to such an extent 
that none of this information on, on, on the Obama budget and what it implies gets out, okay? It, it seems rather obvious when we discuss the figures today that there's no money left because everything has been, is being spent on, on, on the war and on, on the bank bailout. But if you, if you listen to CNN or Fox or CBS, uh, you're not going to get that impression. You're going to, you're going to get the cosmetic uh, review of, of how Obama is trying to uplift uh, the standard of living of average Americans and deal with something which he inherited from the Bush administration. So that, that nobody's going to actually analyze the, the budget in, in detail and, and actually say... Yes, this, this budget is impoverishing millions of people. And so quelling dissent, one of the main instruments to, to quell dissent is to control the media and also to control the alternative media up to a point, okay? So that people in the alternative media who may be funded by, by the Rockefeller or the Ford Foundation or whoever will uh, criticize, but they will criticize within certain limits. They'll say, well, uh, yes, I think that Obama's, uh, Obama's doing this, etc. He's made a lot of mistakes, but they won't necessarily show how the Obama administration is in fact being used to uh, impoverish uh, an entire nation. So um, I think uh, one area that we have to work on very seriously is is to disarm the corporate media to reveal the lies underlying uh, this particular crisis uh, to show that this is not a cyclical crisis which uh, will bottom out as some analysts are suggesting we're dealing with a with the most serious economic and social crisis in in world history which is taking place at the time of a major military adventure in the Middle East. The two things can't be separated. They're part of the same structure. And the only way we can disarm this uh, consensus uh, is, is really to uh, question the legitimacy of, of, uh, of, the, of the neoliberal agenda which sustains it, but also to, uh, to reveal the lies underlying the project and which are conveyed in, in uh, media reports uh, on a daily basis. Uh, uh, it's very difficult to reverse a consensus if we don't have the, the elements of understanding uh, which, which reveals what is actually going on. Okay? Now, the media is not going to say what we've said on this program, that, that the Obama budget is is a budget which will impoverish millions of people. Uh, they will present it as a solution. They may criticize the solution. They may say, well, it, it could be improved. But uh, I think what is needed is precisely to break that process of media disinformation. I'm speaking with economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, America's Fiscal Collapse, Obama's Budget, will impoverish America. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, we're at a very, I think, also if we look internationally now uh, at these various accusations of war crimes directed against uh, 
you know, against the president of Sudan, against former uh, leaders of Yugoslavia by the Hague War Crimes Tribunal. I mean, there's so many accusations of war crimes in the various uh, UN and NATO-sponsored uh, venues, uh, you know, uh, the Hague Tribunal. But if you start looking at war crimes, the people who've actually committed all those war crimes are the heads of state and heads of government of the Western Military Alliance. Okay? Uh, but, you know, the situation in Palestine, the situation in, in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, countries which have been invaded illegally, and so on. And then we have this mountain of disinformation concerning the war crimes committed by, by the, the heads of state of countries which have been invaded. Okay? So that, that, that's the kind of situation we're in, where realities are turned totally upside down, and where the war criminals are, in fact, those who, who decide who the war criminals are supposed to be. Okay? So the heads of state, of, namely the President of the United States, or the, or the British Prime Minister will say, well, the war criminals are those people, but of course we're not war criminals. Again, it, it's, it's tied into the financial crisis because it, it ultimately upholds a legitimacy, the legitimacy to kill, the legitimacy to impoverish, uh, as I, I said earlier, the, the process of impoverishing through the free market is, is contiguous to the process of killing through military intervention in different parts of the world. It, it's, the same, it's the same people, it's the same institutions, it's the same power brokers, the same financial institutions, and uh, those are the structures of, of, uh, of capitalism as we know it. You have recently returned from the Philippines and Malaysia. How are Asian economies being affected? Well, the situation in in Asia is absolutely devastating. Um, in the Pearl River Basin, which uh, of southern um, China, Guangdong Province, which has a very large manufacturing base, largely directed towards exports, according to reports out of Hong Kong, 700,000 workers uh, have been essentially fired they were fired in late January. In other words, they're, they're contract workers so that they, their contracts simply have not been renewed. And uh, that's only in one small segment of, of the Chinese economy. It's a very important area because it's the export, uh, the industrial export economy. So that in these various export economies of Southeast Asia, uh, including China, of course, uh, Malaysia, the Philippines, Korea. The, the impacts are absolutely devastating. In the Philippines in December, um, export earnings collapsed by more than 40% in one month. Now, there you have an economy which uh, relies largely on, on, on export revenues. And it has essentially, it has two areas uh, which feed uh, its its foreign exchange earnings. One is exports, and the other the other is remittances from overseas workers. And both those areas are in crisis. Exports have collapsed, and then 
the, the, the overseas workers, uh, Filipino overseas workers in the Middle East, uh, uh, in, in Hong Kong and, and in, in various other countries uh, who send remittances back to, to, to their families, these people have been fired, many of them have been fired and they're coming home. Okay? So you have a situation which is potentially explosive in these countries. Uh, because the national economies are collapsing, and they're not collapsing uh, in the same way as, as in the United States of America. We have to bear in mind that these are developing countries, and we're talking about Indonesia the, uh, or the Philippines or Thailand. Um, these are developing countries which have been subjected to IMF World Bank reforms for quite a number of years, uh, which are already impoverished. They were impoverished uh, uh, since the 1980s, uh, uh, resulting from the debt crisis. They were impoverished during the Asian crisis in 1997. And now you have a, you have a financial crisis which uh, builds upon an existing situation. In other words, there's mass poverty in these countries and and uh, we now have a new phase of an evolving crisis. Uh, and I think that's what we have to understand, that the levels of impoverishment are exceedingly high to start with. And what, we are, what is occurring is the impoverishment of an impoverished population. So that uh, essentially we're literally driving people into, into starvation. And that is likely to occur in many of these South and Southeast Asian countries, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, very heavily indebted countries, high levels of poverty, and, and uh, again, uh, the brunt of, of, uh, of the financial crisis will be devastating. Perhaps less serious in Malaysia and, and Korea, which are economies uh, which have an internal market, and they're also very much affected, but but not to the same extent as, as some of the, the less developed economies of the region. There is an upcoming G7 summit in London beginning of April. Do you expect any solutions coming out of this summit? I do not expect any solutions coming out of the, of the G7 summit because essentially all those summits are predicated on the neoliberal um, consensus, uh, unless there's some kind of political turnaround within the countries. But uh, I, I don't see that happening. Uh, again, I think that if change occurs, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't emanate from the political establishment. It, it will emanate from, from below, and, and it, it could indeed lead to, to significant political changes. Um, at this stage, it's very hard to predict, but I, I, I think the tendency is, is towards uh, more authoritarian forms of, of government, what some people call fascism. I, I don't think the term is a correct term because we're, we're at a different period of history. And I mean, ironically, fascism was predicated on, on employment creation, the development of the military and, and so on, but, but ultimately creating jobs. We're not in that type of social system today. We're gearing up towards a national security agenda, which could be used to 
curb dissent in a, in, a, in a violent and repressive form, but at the same time, the avenue of economic transition is, not, is simply not there. And um, this authoritarian regime has absolutely no uh, solution to, uh, to even build an element of support you know, within the population. So that, I, I say, that comparing it to, to Nazi Germany or comparing it to, to Italy during the fascist period, I think, is, is a little bit simplistic because both those countries at the time had a, had a consistent um, economic policy which supported their military uh, objectives, but which nonetheless created an element of support by the population I'm not. I'm not trying to build an apology for these for these regimes. Obviously not, but uh, we don't have that today. We don't have the expansionary form of authoritarian government. We have an authoritarian, repressive uh, uh, regime which quells dissent, which is involved in a military adventure, uh, but no social solution is in sight to uh, to ensure the livelihood of millions of people. So does it look more like we're going back to a pre-industrial type age? I think we have to understand that the pre-industrial um, age was based on, on uh, a very different type of international environment. If we, if we look at trading s- systems uh, throughout history, we are, uh, again, at a period of history which is unprecedented because the monetary system is integrated worldwide. Um, the trading apparatus is integrated. There's a tremendous degree of interdependence between uh, national economies. Uh, commodities circulate worldwide. Uh, uh, Western countries rely on on industrial goods which come from China and, and, and Southeast Asia. And uh, what could certainly occur, and, and which is very likely to occur, is the collapse of the international trading system, uh, uh, namely that, that economies would then close in on themselves, so to speak. Uh, but we have to see the, the fact that, that this integration, this global financial integration and the global trading system is also upheld by the deployment of U.S. military facilities all over the world. But not only U.S. military facilities, those of NATO. It's the internationalization of NATO. It's the fact that, that uh, you have U.S. bases all over the world, okay, in, 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 in a large number of countries. And, and so that the military component of the system is there to sustain the financial and trading apparatus so now, will countries be allowed to close their borders and, and return to a, to a different type of, of management of their national economies? Um, would Pakistan or India be allowed to do that with U.S. military bases virtually surrounding them? Okay? So that, that's another aspect. Uh, we can speculate, but I think that the war and the financial crisis are intimately related. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on the program. 
I've been speaking with Michel Chosarovsky. Today's show has been America's Fiscal Collapse, Obama's Budget Will Impoverish America. Michel Chosarovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research and analysis on a broad range of issues focusing on strategic, geopolitical, economic, social, and environmental processes. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Release. You dig me?